0: Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, this week, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the Provisional Government in Russia uh, in 1917. Um, I know ages and ages ago, um, I was focusing quite a bit on Russia, and I did get sidetracked. Let's face it. So we're getting back on track now, and I'm trying to going uh, trying to in the next few podcasts uh, type a few loose ends. as a whole bunch of stuff that really needs to be uh, to be continued, so we can start with Russia and see where we go with that so um if you've not if you 're not familiar with this topic, it would be worth going back to the start of the podcasts and looking at the long term causes of the Russian Revolution and looking at the podcast on the february revolution and um then then coming back to this one okay you've done that great back super okay so um by the by, March nineteen seventeen, the Tsar's government has fallen, and there is no um, clear agreement uh, in Petrograd or in anywhere else um, in Russia as to um, the structure of government that will replace it. A provisional government emerges, and the the key term, obviously, is provisional. It's not meant to last. It's unelected. It's um, meant to be short term before democratic elections can be organised and a uh, a new constitutional Russian government can be uh, created. Now one of the ways um, to look at the February revolution is that it's not really uh, a mass uprising of the people. It's not really the uh, result of actions by skilled and orchestrated revolutionaries. What it is, is the simple um, dissolution and collapse of the Tsarist regime. The immense pressures of World War I, uh, placed on an unyielding and inefficient bureaucracy, combined with widespread hunger and military defeat, really meant that the regime finally uh, implodes, it ceases functioning. And there is nothing there particularly um, ready to replace it. The only institutions that are able to uh, establish themselves by March 1917 are the Provisional Government and the Petrograd Soviet. The Petrograd Soviet is the meeting of um delegates from soviets across the city and the soviets were the workers and soldiers councils that quickly formed themselves in the uh, as the Tsar's government collapsed. Now, this wasn't the first time that Soviets had emerged in Russia. Soviets had emerged in Russia during the 1905 Revolution, and there had indeed been uh, a citywide Soviet Council for some time. Then, during the Petrograd um, Soviet of 1905, it had been Leon Trotsky that had first come to fame, and then had also been um, prominent in his uh, arrest and trial, his denunciation of the Tsarist regime during that. But the Petrograd Soviet um, was a, a far more um, legitimate body in many ways than the provisional government. It, was, um, it relied on um, a mass electorate of uh, workers and soldiers, sending elected delegates. And so it had a far greater mandate to rule within Petrograd The only problem that it faces is that uh, when the uh, full meetings of the Petrograd Soviet take place, there's absolute chaos. Uh, Over time, um, very little is achieved by the Petrograd Soviet due to the the noise um, more than anything else. The incessant um, uh, volume at public meetings um, of the Soviet Delegates shouting over one another, and very little um, getting resolved. And towards the the end of the year, towards the the autumn, uh, prior, you know, the two or three months prior to the seizure of power by the Bolsheviks, uh, there are fewer and fewer delegates actually attending the Petrograd Soviet. There are more and more um, delegates uh, staying away, becoming disillusioned, feeling that nothing can get done. And it's really the um, the Bolshevik deputies who, by hanging on in there, have a disproportionate amount of power. The basis of the Petrograd Soviet had um, been developed during the war by the Mensheviks, a body called the Central Workers' Group, which tried to represent workers' interests to the um, Tsarist military-industrial complex, uh, was uh, arrested during the war. uh, uh, It was seen as subversive, seditious, radical, and confined to the Peter uh, Peter and Paul Fortress fortress in St. Petersburg, um, and on being freed, it formed the basis of the new Petrograd Soviet. The uh, Petrograd Soviet does try to create its own organs of government. It build, creates an executive committee that actually establishes itself before there are um, elections to the Soviet, and it uh, creates its own newspaper, Zvezia, um, to uh, propagandise its ideas to the masses. Um, the, the only problem is is that neither of these two organs can prevent the Soviet from eventually decaying into uh, the, the chaos that I, I spoke of a moment ago. The first act of the uh, Petrograd Soviet is the passing of Soviet Order No. One. The order uh, gave a directive to soldiers and sailors to obey the provisional government Only on the uh, proviso that the provisional government's policies never contradict the will of the Petrograd Soviet itself. The reason that they could do this, obviously, is because delegates from army regiments and naval units had been sent uh, from their initial Soviets to the Petrograd Soviet. So the Petrograd Soviet really had control, even before the provisional government had properly established itself of armed force within Petrograd. And they also had control over all the other main amenities, be it uh, railway, telegraph, power and what have you. So the Petrograd Soviet was able to quite literally point a gun to the provisional government's head and say, we are willing to cooperate with you, however, we are also able to wield uh, significant power over you as well. So the two organisations exist in this rather uncomfortable marriage until October 1917. The provisional government uh, makes a number of uh, decisions which are deeply unpopular, but it is unable to really do very much else. And in this, the uh, Petrograd Soviet choose to back the provisional government. The first key decision is a decision to continue with the war. uh, It's not... The war had obviously, from uh, 1914 onwards, with um, with the exception of um, one campaign in 1916, the uh, Brusilov campaign, Um, the war had been largely an mitigated disaster all the way through from 1914 to 1917. But it wasn't uh, as simple as simply saying, the war has gone badly wrong, we will now leave it. Uh, For a number of reasons, the provisional government was unable to do so. Reason number one is that the provisional government or the Tsar's government uh, had been in hock uh, to the tune of tens of millions in loans to Britain and France. The uh, provisional government inherited this debt and the um, bankruptcy of the the Tsarist state, they'd inherited that as well. Now, if the war loans are cut off because Russia chooses not to cooperate with the Western allies in the war against Germany any longer, Russia will finally collapse. It is really uh, overseas loans that are keeping the country afloat. So the British and French hold a financial uh, blackmail over Russia. Also, uh, the scale of losses, uh, mounting into the many millions uh, by uh, both civilian and uh, military by 1917, meant that there was still a significant body of people in the country that wanted to see the war through to a successful conclusion and wanted to um, to benefit, wanted Russia to finally reap the rewards of all her sacrifices uh, up to that period. Simply uh, walking away from the war and uh, abandoning um, the uh, everything that it, one could argue that the Russian soldier had fought for was unthinkable to many people of a of a more nationalist persuasion the um advances that germany had made into poland and uh, into uh, western um parts of the russian empire also meant that any uh, cease, uh, cessation of hostilities by russia would lead to colossal indemnities and most of Western Russia, the Ukraine, Poland, and the Baltic states, would be claimed by Germany. The Russians, particularly the provisional government is particularly keen not to lose the Ukraine. The Ukraine is the breadbasket of Russia. It is the, the most fertile part of the Russian Empire, and uh, without that, um, the food crisis within Russia would be greatly exacerbated. So the provisional government um, has... Uh, A very difficult task ahead of it. It has to stay in the war long enough uh, in order for the war to be won either by Russia or by her allies. And yet, um, the ability, the fighting ability of the Russian army is disintegrating. One of the reasons why it's disintegrating is because there has been a revolution in the countryside. It isn't just a revolution contained to Russia's cities. There's a, um, a revolution. Uh, Contain uh, uh, happening in the countryside. It's a very different kind of revolution. It is uh, not a political revolution, but a mass peasant land grab, an explosion of anger and uh, frustration and rage that manifests itself with horrific violence across Russia's countryside. The uh, exile, the fleeing of uh, Russia's aristocracy, and the burning down of. um, many uh, aristocratic mansions and lodges within the countryside uh, follow suit and the bulk of Russia's armies are of course peasants hearing um, from back, from their villages back home in central Russia that there is a vast land grab um, uh, occurring a, a historically unprecedented opportunity to uh, get hold of land This inspires a great many uh, Russian soldiers throughout 1917 to abandon the last futile attempts at uh, trying to defeat the Germans. The Russian soldiers, as I think I've probably mentioned before, have um, very little sense of national identity, very little sense uh, that they are... um, uh, that they are sort of citizens of a nation state and fighting um, for a particular set of ideals as perhaps the german or british soldiers would have entertained These a man with a very localized sense of identity and um, their understanding about what the war's about and why bother fighting it at all is quite limited and so the appeal of seizing land back in central and back home in Russia is is, is overwhelming. And this brings me on to the next dilemma of the provisional government, the issue of land. The provisional government haven't really got a mandate to go passing huge sweeping land reforms. They know that that this is um, the fundamental question underpinning Russian society, the ownership of land and the uh, treatment of um, the majority of Russia's population. And without a mandate, they, they feel really that they can't tackle this issue. There must be an election first, and the parties must stand on manifestos about what to do about the land. But it also is worth noting that um, many of the new provisional government members, such as Prince Lvov, the new Russian Prime Minister, are significant landowners themselves. and So there's probably quite a deal of uh, reluctance or resistance to addressing the land question. Um, Many aristocrats um, look upon um, the the Tsarist regime and upon the provisional government with immense frustration, hoping that um, the the land question will be sorted out actually in the peasants' favour before the peasants decide to sort it out themselves um, in their typically violent fashion. So the land question and the issue of war... Um, leads to the the third thing that it is very difficult for the provisional government to resolve, and that is the issue of hunger in the cities with um, the war to, continuing to being fought to being fought. there is chaos amongst russia's food economy. What had initially happened is that russia's army had put had said that we will have first refusal on all foodstuffs. there was more than enough food to feed all of Russia and feed her army. Um, and the problem that Russia faces is that her bureaucracy is so poor and her infrastructure is so poor that when food was requisitioned from the uh, agrarian parts of Russia and shipped to the front line, never actually made it to the front line. Very often, huge sacks of grain would be left to rot in warehouses and horses that were requisitioned that probably not quite suitable for uh, warfare or for drawing gun carriages um, left farms without the ability to plough, sons who were uh, ideal for farm work, taken away and lost in the war. And so there is a, a collapse of Russia's food industry during the war, and a uh, the relationship between towns and cities is broken. Um, this results in food inflation, scarcity, hunger so without with without resolving the land question without resolving the war question it's very difficult to resolve the hunger question and this really is when lenin um comes into the picture in the uh, in january of um 1917 lenin had been despairing that a revolution might never happen in his lifetime and within six weeks it had occurred so it completely took him by surprise He and the majority of the Bolsheviks were in Switzerland. Trotsky himself was in New York when he heard the news. And all of them were in a race against time to get back to Russia. Uh, Lenin uh, is involved in a secret deal with the imperial German government. The imperial German government know that it's the kind of people like Lenin who are most likely to withdraw Russia from the war so they connive to secretly ship him and the kind of the grandees of the bolshevik party back into russia and he appears at um, petrograd in april at the finland station um on the way he's drafted a series of directives called the april theses and he makes uh, them quite simple he knows he's going to be speaking to a mass audience when he returns or well, he we hopes so anyway Um, and he says that there should be three main demands on the government, peace, bread, and land, and the fourth, all power to the Soviets. Now, going through these one by one, an end to the war. Um, Lenin himself, um, when it comes to finally negotiating a peace treaty with the Germans, doesn't Initially, go for um, an unconditional exit from the war. He's more canny than that. He wasn't that keen on giving the Germans everything they wanted um, just at the drop of a hat. He only goes for an unconditional exit from the war when really there is he has no other choice. But he suggests that um, the policy of the uh, of a Russian government should be uh, peace. And a withdrawal from the um, the imperialist war, um, bread that the city should be fed, and land that land should go to the peasants. And this is the interesting one I find. Lenin had no intention of keeping this policy. The idea that the peasants, who in the minds of most of the Bolsheviks were a kind of a dangerous, backward, reactionary bunch who were out of step with the, the dialectic, the, the view of history. Um, that Marx laid down um the idea that these people should be given the biggest really asset within Russian society, the land, was an anathema. Lenin was fully prepared um, after concessions, tactical retreats, and withdrawals to impose collectivisation on the peasantry, which is again, I know I keep promising this, but something we will look at later. Um, It's not really a a subject for now. Um, He was fully prepared to impose collectivisation on the peasantry and had no intention of honouring that promise. And as far as all power to the Soviets went, really that's code for all power to the Bolsheviks. Lenin uh, believed that the key to dominating Russia would be for the Bolshevik party to dominate the Soviets and it would be the Soviets that would eventually sweep Provisional government away. Lenin and the Bolsheviks are greeted by uh, a, par- a welcoming party of workers and soldiers at the Finland station. But when Lenin returns, really the Bolshevik party are a, a fairly fringe, a fairly minor um, group. They are not really at the centre of politics, and Lenin is known of mostly in left circles. Um, But really, he's not considered to be a a particularly important political player. So it's interesting to consider that really between April and October, uh, that fundamentally changes. Uh, Though that said, in 1918, there's an apocryphal story of um, Lenin uh, driving around uh, Petrograd in his limousine uh, that had been converted for snow and it had skis on the front um, and he was the the city is in total chaos at the time he is uh, robbed at gunpoint uh, by thieves who wanted his wallet to his fur coat and when the driver says comrades do you not know who this is the answer is no they don't they have no idea who it is so so Lenin as a kind of a, um, a public figure really um, is in many ways, quite obscure to um, a good deal of the population. So Lenin's um, return uh, is not—it's not, it's not a particularly happy one. He's not very happy with the Bolshevik Party when he returns. Um, the only Bolsheviks that of any note that are in Petrograd are Stalin and Kamenev, and he rages at them, and says, "You know, why have you not tried to seize power already, Stalin?" Who had uh, was fresh out of uh, exile, um, his exile and uh, that of Kamenev had come to an end, when the uh, Petrograd Soviet insisted of the provisional government that they provide an amnesty uh, for uh, political prisoners, thus allowing all the prov- the um, provisional government's worst nightmares uh, out of exile. Stalin had come out of exile and he had uh, taken over leadership of the party newspaper. Pravda and he had advocated uh, a policy of moderation with the uh, provisional government he had advocated within the party's pages that the uh, there should be no confrontation with the provisional government because at that time he judged probably rightly that the party would be crushed if it tried to do such a thing Lenin um had a showdown with Stalin on this very subject and in essence says to him, comrade, you must support me in uh, the policy that I think is right, i.e. confrontation with the provisional government, overthrowing the provisional government, that's what we must be working towards, um, or you're out of the party. Stalin backs down fairly quickly, realising this is um, a fight that he's not going to win and there's no point really in, in pursuing it. The irony of all this is that uh, in July Lenin is given uh, almost on a uh, on a plate the opportunity to sweep away the provisional government and doesn't take it. So let's explore that one for a moment. In June 1917, the summer offensive or organised. Uh, by the provisional government fails. It's a disaster and it's the last great defeat of Russia during the war. At that point the army begins to disintegrate and go home. There are mass demonstrations on the streets of Petrograd and the government stands close to um, annihilation. The um, provisional government uh, is, is isolated. The uh, Petrograd Soviet is being um, coming under intense pressure from workers and soldiers to seize power. The um, Kronstadt sailors, the most revolutionary of the um, aspect of the former Tsarist armed forces, get on their ships and sail from Kronstadt Island, a fortress in the Gulf of Finland, about uh, ten miles or so. Um, away from the centre of Petrograd, and they they dock at Petrograd and march through the streets, and they they march in essence to where Lenin lives, um, and Lenin comes out onto a small balcony, and essentially says, "Thanks for seeing you guys. Thanks for turning up. Um, good luck with your revolution. Best of luck. You um, you carry on." So he uh, the um, the crowds that are hoping that he will lead them and see and take power are disappointed. Now, why does this happen? Well, it could be for one of two reasons. It could be that Lenin, who's normally very good at uh, seizing the uh, moment and about um, capitalising on uh, events and changes. It could be that, like all of us, he, you know, he, he, he misses the beat. He, um, he, he bungles it at that particular juncture. But there's another theory as well. It could be that the kind of revolution that Lenin sees at his doorstep really is incompatible with um, what he wants to achieve. Lenin wrote in um, his uh, most famous book, What is to be Done, that um, a, a mass revolution of the people will really take an awful long time and will probably you know, never come about in Russia if it's left to its own devices. So a revolutionary vanguard, a small revolutionary party must seize power in a coup and then impose socialism, educate the nation in socialism when um, it's in power, um, bring, um, impose all manner of dictatorial edicts, wipe out unnecessary classes like the bourgeoisie um, and create, you know reshape society. So when Lenin sees the, the masses come to his doorstep, he probably realizes as well that it's going to be very difficult to impose his vision of society um when you are you have so many competing voices who will have so much more power if you're but one of them um assisting them to, to seize power so there is um there are two competing um, possibilities there um of which i've got an open mind about both of them um, at the moment the uh, July days, as they're called, um, the uh, protests in July, are broken up by um, the remaining troops who were loyal to the provisional government firing on the crowd, uh, quite a few killed uh, by the provisional government. And at this point, the provisional government starts to lose most of its credibility. The idea that the provisional government, which is meant to be a government of the people, of the revolution, can now uh, behave as the Tsar had done on Bloody Sunday 1905, Fire on the people um, means that support begins draining away. Prince Lvov, um, a, a, a very liberal-minded, very moral-minded man in many ways, um, decides that he can no longer uh, guide Russia through her her turmoil. And he resigns at this point, um, leaving the new war, war minister, Alexander Kerensky, to fill his shoes. And Kerensky um, has a brief and fairly unsuccessful time of things between July and October. Alexander Kerensky in many ways was um, seen as as one of the great hopes for Russia. He was a um, young, handsome, charismatic, uh, one of the social revolutionary party and a um, a figure of of immense dynamism and uh, popularity. But again, once the um, once we get to October, his power is uh, not so much seized by the Bolsheviks as it has evaporated. So let's look at how that occurs. Um, his new chief of uh, chief of the army uh, that replaces uh, Brusilov is uh, Lavr Kornilov. Kornilov was a man who had never accepted the verdict of um, the. February Revolution, uh, never saw it as legitimate, never saw it as being uh, something worth preserving and had um, a, a mind really to uh, sweep away the, the revolution within Petrograd. Kerensky himself had uh, been engaged in um, his own repression uh, following the July days. He held Lenin chiefly responsible for the um, unrest. Lenin flees to Finland uh, with a rather unconvincing stick-on beard Um, and he also has many of the Bolsheviks uh, flung into jail and um, the um, Bolshevik party really by um, late July, uh, August 1917, is seen as a spent force, all all but gone. There is an awful lot of uh, anger towards the Bolsheviks for not having seized the moment uh, when they could have done uh, during the July days. But Kerensky's problem is that once he had appointed Kornilov, he began to have second thoughts about him and started to view him as a dangerous kind of Napoleon figure who would likely sweep his government away and replace it with a military dictatorship. And he looked to get rid of the Bolsheviks uh, once and for all, yes. But he also thought that he would be able to deal with Kornilov as well. Kornilov appealed to the conservative mentality within Russia, the considerable numbers of people who wanted a kind of return to law and order and uh, an end to further revolutionary change. So Kornilov listed a series of uh, reactionary demands, uh, in essence, asking to be made a dictator. And he um, had a series of very um, confused, chaotic communications with Kerensky. Um, Lvov is camped uh, pretty much outside the city and uh, Kerensky within. And they have uh, exchanges via a um, very antiquated teleprinter system and a series of intermediaries, there's a a lot of um, conflicting information about these exchanges and the the real picture is is quite unclear as to what was said, but it looks like the overall result of those exchanges was that Kerensky gained the impression in uh, mid-August that uh, Kornilov was intending to replace him as a military dictator in Russia. Kerensky's problem is that he hasn't got any troops. The um, troops that uh, would have protected the uh, provisional government are probably more loyal to um, Kornilov. The uh, forces that he had are bleeding away day by day. Um, they either shift. They either, as I, as I mentioned, uh, likely to support Kornilov or more inclined to support the Petrograd Soviet or the Bolsheviks. So Kerensky winds up having to go cap in hand to his arch enemies. He sends a telegram to Kornilov, dismissing him. Kornilov suspects that really this is not coming from Kerensky so much as coming from the Petrograd Soviet, and therefore, in Kornilov's eyes, from the Bolsheviks, and believes that a, a communist takeover is happening in Petrograd, and mobilizes his forces. Letting the Bolsheviks out of jail, uh, the um, Bolsheviks form a uh, a Red Guard of workers and soldiers, and they use their uh, influence over the railmen's unions to shut down the railway network and prevent Kornilov from making it to the city. Um, had Kornilov arrived, it would have been almost without question that Bolshevik and Petrograd Soviet members would be hanging from lampposts across the city. Trotsky, when he emerges from jail, establishes the Military Revolutionary Committee, which he'll eventually use to overthrow the provisional government in October. And um, it's with this that he coordinates the defence of the city. Almost um, almost without a shot being fired, they managed to stop Kornilov. And the, um, the railway system, as mentioned, was Closed down, and the Bolshevik um, agitators and negotiators go out to talk to the troops and persuade the troops not to fire on their fellow soldiers and not to fire on, C- on civilians within Petrograd. And as a result, uh, Bol- uh, Kornilov's army, in effect, goes on strike. Kornilov, realizing he's lost control of his troops, uh, flees, and the um, Kerensky's government is temporarily saved. The problem that Kerensky has after this is that he uh, realises he's hopelessly vulnerable, he has no forces of his own, and also he's armed the Bolsheviks, and the Bolsheviks aren't keen to hand the guns back. Trotsky now has an infrastructure of uh, the Military Revolutionary Committee, and Lenin himself is smuggled back into Russia, the Bolsheviks finally in the start of September win a majority in the Petrograd Soviet, largely because they are the only significant organised force there anymore. Lenin only finally manages to win the uh, unanimity of the Bolshevik party for revolution four days before the October Revolution occurs. So on the 23rd of October he uh, manages to get a resolution passed within the party saying that um, revolution is inevita- inevitable. And that means that um, the clock is ticking, really, for the overthrow of the provisional government. Now, the official version um, of the Russian Revolution, of the October Revolution, that was presented throughout the life of the Soviet Union was that it was a massed armed attack on the Winter Palace that many comrades fell, that they stormed the gates, that there were thousands of soldiers and thousands of defenders. And it was um, a a titanic bloody clash with Lenin at the vanguard, six-shooter in hand, and that kind of thing, which is all, of course, complete nonsense. The um, troops who were sent to seize the Winter Palace spent hours hours running around the Winter Palace. It's a vast, vast building, many times bigger than Buckingham Palace, um, trying to find a provisional government. What they don't find is any defenders. The The gates are virtually wide open. A few shots are fired. Um, the, it, is vir- it is largely a bloodless coup. Um, they eventually they find the provisional government and what's left of them who resign. Um, the, um, so the Russian battleship, the Aurora, had pulled up the River Neva beside the Winter Palace and fired off what well, essentially are naval blank rounds, shattering the windows of the Winter Palace. And That was when the Provisional government realised really that the game is up um, and they are uh, arrested and taken away. Um, Kerensky flees Russia and eventually um, winds up in America where he spent most of his life. Uh, The the remaining members of the uh, provisional government over the next uh, couple of decades will die in either Bolshevik or Stalinist labour camps or execution cells and um, suffer unimaginable cruelties. Uh, the, um, The fact about the provisional government is it isn't... Overthrown, in very much like the Tsarist government. It's the Tsarist government, kind of, is like you imagine it being like a machine that breaks down. The provisional government is simply a thing that simply evaporates, dissolves. It has uh, no mandate and no forces and no nothing by the end, no credibility. So there's nobody there willing to fight for it, and the um, level of desperation in Russia at that time uh, really is the key to Bolshevik success. Uh, the the willingness to give any government a go that will actually function in some way really results in uh, success of the Bolsheviks. But we'll look a little bit more at the events of the October Revolution next time. Now, I know I make these promises, and I'm going to stick to them now. This is my, um, not New Year's, but uh, well, let's call it the August Revolu- um, Resolution. Ha, huh, nearly got me there. Um, so we'll be looking, um, we're doing a lot on Russia in the next couple of weeks or so. I'm going to try and finish off some of the Germany stuff as well. I have this kind of aversion to going into, too, into great depth about Hitler. Not because it's an interesting and worthy topic, but just because, well, what can I say that the History Channel hasn't already done? So um, I'll catch you on the next podcast. I hope you find this useful. If you want more on this, check out the range of books on uh, explaininghistory.com we've already got about the Russian Revolution. You can look at Chris Kostov's uh, The Communist Century. There is uh, a couple of things written by myself, um, a, a beginner's guide to the Russian Revolution, Um and there are there's my ebook uh, Russia's Struggle with Modernity, and uh, the one on Stalin I did too. So check it all out. It's on www.explaininghistory.com, and uh, I'll find you uh, on the next podcast. Thank you very much. Bye bye.